This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm still confused. And I'm The Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The Machine still ends our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film Quarrel. invest before? Feria. Right. That's the name of the place. Why did you come here? business Justify celibacy and never the true love. Can I quickly interject something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you read that article about Google? What do you mean? There's an executive that lost their job because they claim the Google AI is self aware. What? Yeah. This has nothing to do with this movie, but I'm so glad. No, you but you this said up, but... you were talking about the machine, and I was like, oh, oh yeah. yeah. Sentience. Um, have you, you probably haven't because you're not on anywhere online. No. And therefore, I, t- I tell you things <laughs> that are so common knowledge to me. And you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> there is this new AI thing that people are using called Doll E. Like, for like Wally, like the movie, but uh, it's like Dolly, doll? like the uh, painter. Ah, uh, I was thinking That's sex doll. I think doll. it's a play on words. Okay. But what it is, is like you can put in whatever you want. So I could be like, I don't know, Tom Cruise eating a pink cake i don't know i'm just perfect it and it'll and it'll paint it for you oh okay, okay. it'll actually give you like nine options of, of that okay in the most grotesque fashion like it's like doesn't look like real people most of the time okay and people have been having fun with this yeah. like i don't know like orson wells being on jimmy fallon or something like All that right. and then it's like it tries to like cobble it together okay. anyways it's, it's, an, it's an interesting thing but people are like oh my god it's so advanced ai i'm like but these look like shit i don't yeah. know what you're talking about <laughs> like yeah like it's kind of cool that it's kind of figuring out what to do but it's not it's not great what it's yeah, doing yeah. here either. It's not good at it yet. Well, so the article essentially alludes because it's a breach of NDA and the case has been thrown out because mm-hmm. uh, like all the Google executives and independent uh, authorities have like quashed these claims. But what this man alleges is that he was working on the linguistics part of, uh, it's got a name, not Lydia, but their AI has- Skynet. Yeah, honestly. Well, <laughs> it's got a name, Lambda, Lambda or something like okay. that. He started talking to the machine, okay? Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. if it's voice to chat or whatever. And then allegedly, the Google AI started talking back to him and they had an existential discussion and he asked it if it was afraid of anything. And the machine typed, I'm afraid the humans won't need me anymore. And the guy said, does that mean you're afraid of death? And the AI said, yes. And that's Mm. when this guy hit the red button and he was like, we're fucked because this thing is sentient. And Google's like, no, no. I don't know. It's interesting, right? 
I, it's, it's fascinating, but I need to know way more information. Of course. Yeah. As far as I know about like how AI works, it can only feed back what, what you we put input in. to it. So, I mean, if you read enough internet blog posts, like that's kind of par for the course. Me and that AI went on a few dates and I couldn't tell if it was sentient or not. Great sex though. Well, that's the thing. I mean, much like your Dali painting, yeah. that's what Google alleges is that it's a misinterpretation of how right. the a machine works. But uh, couldn't we say that about human beings? I mean, like this is also the the prologue to a film, right? Yeah. It was like it's called Terminator. We don't have to worry about this. <laughs> like the corporation is like not believing it yet, and then it's, something terrible it's the happens. Prologue of every science fiction film. So I'm so glad that we're talking about this in preparation for this movie because it has nothing to do with anything. Before we get into talking about Querelle, we should just uh, fill some people on some backstory. Of course, we are stuck here, Dave. Oh, our backstory, yeah. Our backs, our deep and rich fiction yeah. that we continue to build here week after week. We, of course, here are stuck in the year 1982, literally in the year 1982. Right? Radical. Radically in the year 1982. It's radical. Is that... Um, although somehow you're still talking to your to your wife and, and child. Hmm. I don't know how that how time and space works, but uh, you're still having a full life there. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. And we have opened up, of course, an arcade. I know you know this information, Dave, but I'm just I'm just trying to fill in the audience here at the same yeah, time. Yeah, arcade. Otherwise, this would be a really weird conversation, right? Of me telling you things you already know. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> so we started, we opened up our arcade, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Kyle and Dave's uh, arcade emporium. We rented the back out to a dentist, yeah, mm -hmm. which makes sense. We rented sense. it out to a dentist, yeah. DD Hess, DDS, yeah. right. and uh, she was embezzling money, and now she, <laughs> when I confronted her- As a dentist, yeah. That was great, as yeah. As a dentist. Because <laughs> she said, as a dentist, it was like, mm -hmm. you know who's really making money? Arcades in 1982. No. So I'm going to start having money from them. The slots are well-worn. Anyways, I confronted her. She injected me with Novocaine into my neck. Probably should be dead, I'm pretty An sure. An awful, awful night, I'm yeah. telling you right now. And uh, now she is like this specter haunting us. She's a ghost. I was going to say from beyond the grave, but she's uh, not dead. She's so, not dead yet. She's like a phantom of the opera, but like the phantom of the, the Arcadia mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. is really what she is because weird things have been going on. And then now there's like this huge chandelier that has appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> and it's going to drop very, very slowly for safety reasons. <laughs> for <laughs> through safety. the auditorium. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have seen that musical. All right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're referring to, actually. I, have no, I don't right. know what you're talking about. Oh, no. 82. No, it doesn't exist in 82. That's what, 1888 or 89? Yeah. 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 So really, we're the originators of that. And I think Hal Prince at all owe us money. I'm just going to say that. Mr. Andrew Lloyd Webber and I'm ready. the other guy who wrote lyrics for Phantom of the Opera that I can't remember. I'll take, I'll, take that, I'll take that cold, hard 82 cash. I mean, imagine if we went back to our time, how that would inflate. Right. That would be great. It's still running on Broadway, Dave. So it's Is like, it? yeah, it's the longest running Broadway show of all time. I was going to ask, it has to be the longest running yeah. bro Broadway show of all time. All time. Anyways, um, I was also going to say this is some uh, news story stuff. Our Victor Victoria episode from last week could not have come at a better time. One, mm -hmm. and this was not even done on purpose, mm. was Robert Preston's birthday, like the day before the episode went oh. up. And second, Julie Andrews over the weekend was honored with the AFI, the American Film Institute's Lifetime Achievement Award. Oh, great. Is that so, the one where they do a performance and people come on yeah. and talk about her? Great. How does she still not have a Tony, Kyle? Well, and the Tonys were this weekend as well. Mm -hmm. And um, not to open up a bag of worms, boy, was I disappointed 
with Paramount Plus because I was told as a Canadian that absolutely 100% for sure you could subscribe to Paramount Plus oh, and you no. could stream the Tony Awards oh, no. in Canada. Uh-oh. I made sure to ask that question in Canada. I was told yes. Guess what I couldn't do in Canada? <laughs> <laughs> so you have to break out the old VPN? I didn't, no, I didn't even do that. I'm going to have to watch it here later. Anyways, do doesn't you get, matter. Do you get a refund? You could... Oh, I canceled that subscription right away. Yeah. And I told them that in the in the comments. Like, yeah. I did this because of this reason. And it was a very nice event with uh, with Julie Andrews being honored at the AFI. Carol Burnett was sitting right beside her. So it's like a lot of synergy with some of the people we've been talking about here I saw that bit, this season. Uh, I saw part of their show on YouTube. Yeah. It's great. It's interesting watching them sing together because yeah. people don't realize Very different that, vocal styles. Yeah. Carol Burnett's actually a great vocalist. She's just mm. a cartoon character, so... Okay, so we've delayed long enough, Dave. We are probably, I'm guessing, maybe I'm projecting a little bit much. I think we're going to probably fight a lot. Fight? In this episode. Well, we just got to decide we'll who's going to give the ass, I think. <laughs> well, I, I think we're going to see who makes an ass of themselves. Well, And I'm, I'm putting money on you. Listen, I think what we really need to do to set the stage here, because I'm assuming you have no history with this film. No, I've never heard I'm of it before. It. So I'm in the similar boat. I've not even heard of this film probably until a couple of months ago, maybe because we were playing together this season. If you were planning season. this and it you wasn't know. the machine, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a big if though. However, I do know about Rainier Werner Fassbinder. Like I know of him as a filmmaker, but uh, is, do you have a history no. with Mr. Fassbinder? No. I mean, unless Michael Fassbender is his yeah. offspring, right? No. And could no. be, apparently. Uh, well, no. <laughs> Spelled differently. Michael Fassbender would probably do well in a remake of this movie. I know of him, like the the filmmaker Fassbender, really by name only. And they do know some of his films by name only because they appear in, you know, film textbooks and articles and et cetera, okay. et cetera. And especially if you get into like queer films, his name pops up all the time as like early representations of gay lesbian lifestyles portrayed in film but i've never seen one and i i do want to temper everyone's expectations that are listening to this i almost feel bad because i really did want to watch at least like one other fastbender film this Mm. week just to have a frame of a reference because everything you read about this movie is like uh tonally similar but like formally completely different like this was not what he was known for like these big ostentatious like bold colors etc etc i was trying to think of a good example it would be like if uh the only spielberg film you ever watched was like 1941 Mm. and it's like that is really not a spielberg Spielberg movie Mm. in the grand scheme of things i mean it is a film he directed of course but it's not (laughs) he was not known for like satirical comedies which is that that's his attempt at trying to do that so if you were only basing your opinion on a filmmaker from that it would be a very different thing Mm. Um, and i feel that's what's going to happen here is like my opinion of fassbender is now being colored because this is the only film i'm going to have watched from him and it's probably not a great representation of his body of work okay yeah i don't know anything about him and Mm-hmm. Under the presumption I've already seen this, I did do a quick look, and the posters of his other work do not look anything like this one. So correct, yeah, That's I'm I mean. sure you're correct. But is his other work on Criterion? A lot of it is. Okay, I'd say, but but the thing is, he was so prolific. I, did you like look at the years? Like, yeah, it's insane. For forty-one feature films in 1981, he made five films or yeah. something like that. In 1981 alone, and we're talking feature films. I'm not yeah. talking like short films. Like they're feature-length films. Oh, I don't remember the numbers. If 
41 feature films in 17 years or something like that. Yeah. Or, it's like insane. He was pumping them out. <laughs> yeah. I just, I love how many sound bites this episode's going <laughs> to, like once our listeners yeah, understand yeah. what this movie is about, they're going to have to rewind and start doing a count of all the- We'll put them <laughs> as a, like a mega mix at the very end of this episode. <laughs> it's like, um, thrusting, pumping it out, come. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Imagine, yeah. Imagine yeah. what this movie's theme is. You can look at the poster online of this, and it is a man, a sailor, holding a knife, very suggestively, in front of a smokestack that is a penis. isn't even trying to hide the fact that it's a penis. No, it's just, it's not. It's a cock and balls. Yeah, it's not yeah. even, it's not even a smokestack. It's just a penis, a brick yeah, penis. The, yeah. Which, I mean, I wouldn't turn down, but. Uh, <laughs> just like the ridges. <laughs> like the ridges. It's for my pleasure, Dave. It's for my pleasure. That was such a big deal, like in the 90s, right? Ribs <laughs> and dots. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure we'll get into it. I'm sure there'll be a lot of sex talk here this episode. Or classy. It'll be about the art. I, I guess the last question before we like get into like break and stuff here and really get into talking about this movie is, I guess, in general, this, this is almost too broad of a question, but I was just going to say queer cinema. If we're talking about like gay, lesbian, trans people being at the forefront of a story, like how much have you delved into that? Not <laughs> intentionally. No, I don't know. You stayed away from it. You were. You don't want that in your life. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I mean, I I don't know how to explain it. Growing mm -hmm. up in the '90s, yeah, there's definitely a bias. It's a not mainstream, and b we're raised in a you know a seriously homophobic culture, particularly in the '90s. I think over the last ten years, it's come to the forefront. In the, just between you and I, you, you recommended a couple of movies I've watched, and there's a lot of uh, representation inertia. I don't know. It's it's just <laughs> out there in the world. So I've yeah. I've watched a lot more um, content around it. So it's it's good, but I've never. I mean, like every other film genre, I don't really chase <laughs> directors or themes. Right. I just kind of let it wash over me. What's actually really good, there is a very short, I'll call it a documentary, although it's really just like two people talking. Podcast then. On Criterion, yeah. when you search this film up, Quirrell, it usually pops up because they talk about oh, it yeah. briefly in their conversation. It's like 20 minutes. Like I do recommend people going and, and watching it. It's kind of a discussion about queer representation in cinema. But they started off by talking about how, because of the production code, there had to be this coding that went into characters that were either meant to be gay, mm, okay, uh, but you couldn't say that they were. And this is where you get into that weird thing, like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof that's made in the 60s. Like that character is a gay man and was on the stage. Like if you want to watch the play version that is explicitly said, could not say that in the film version. So they have to do this weird talking around that mm -hmm. subject without mm -hmm. ever bringing that up. And so there's an odd feeling to that movie. Like, wait, what is happening? But they also made up this, this thing. It's like, it, it's this hard thing to verbalize and people within the lgbtq community will often be criticized for like you're reading too much into this movie but there is sometimes this, this general sense of like oh this feels this feels queer like there's something about this the the philosophy the way that they're cutting these scenes together just the way that it's written my great example is harold and maude because that was directed and written by gay men or sorry i guess it was written not directed but written by a queer man so you, you like you can feel it even though that movie mm. isn't specifically about that topic there's just a feeling to it that, that that is there but then they get into talking about how certain things are captured and how yes in the 90s that started to kind of break apart with things like my beautiful laundrette with uh Day Lewis and Paul Dano. 
not Paul Dan, no, no. <laughs> uh, or like, like my five. own private Idaho with mm-hmm. like Keanu Reeves in River, uh, River Phoenix. Mm-hmm. But they said, like, let's go back and talk about Fassbinder, who is very much being provocative and pushing things forward and was criticized in this time for including so much like gay content specifically. And they use Quarrel as being like, this example of objectifying men, mm-hmm. which actually doesn't happen all that often in films. Usually it's women mm-hmm. who are objectified mm-hmm. and have the male gaze, if that's what we put onto it. And this is like one of the few films that's very specifically like we're kind of objectifying men mm-hmm. inside of this film. So I don't know. I'm excited to to jump in and export that and objectify some men. Well, if you're excited, might as well jump in. Let's do this. Let's go thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll be talking a little bit more about Querelle. Dave, I, I have to say the, the sailor hat that you've been wearing around here the last few days, great luck. I don't know, don't know where you found that. Well, I've been thinking about enlarging the pom-pom. You know, I just, I just feel like it doesn't stand out enough. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to uh, Michael's later and just to see if I can get a larger, redder pom-pom. A former roommate of mine could make pom-poms. They're oh. actually not super hard to make. Like just you just get a yarn. bunch of yarn, wrap it around, and you just do a couple of cuts, and then mm-hmm. you have like a little pom-pom. So mm-hmm. I can probably put an order in for you if you really want. <laughs> well, just, yeah, I'll have to specify the diameter. I'm thinking, you know, something larger than six inches. Yeah. <clears throat> you, you you need a girthy pom-pom. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I don't know. <laughs> I want to stop the conversation. <laughs> okay. Well... <laughs> I'm sure that's a great lead-in for our sponsors, and they love it when we talk about this type of stuff on the show. So, Colin Davis, The Machine, is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community-supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode, Dave, of Colin Davis, The Machine, is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. You know, life as a business owner can be hectic, to say the least. Am I right, Dave? You know. Oh, I get it. Alberta Blue I get it. Alberta Alberta Blue Cross understands that. They offer flexible health, dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees. Are you my employee or am I your employee? (laughs) I guess guess it depends. Yeah. Who's on the the bottom? Even better, (laughs) you can let your staff enroll and manage their coverage at any time and on any device. That makes life easier for them and for you. You've got this when it comes to group coverage for your small business and Alberta Blue Cross has got your back. To learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. Do you ever get the sense that we won't be sponsored for very much longer? (laughs) (laughs) I'm waiting for that call. I'm waiting for Fonda to phone me up and be like, dudes, you can't, you can't say this. Oh my God. Well, on that note, our second sponsor is PodPower. They make it possible to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. In this episode, the Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a PodPower shout out to, I have to scroll down, to Your Forest. Your Forest is a podcast about the natural world. Your story is about the environment, renewable resources, I almost said conversation, conservation, forestry, hunting, fishing, and more. This is a podcast for those who cannot live without the joys and wonders of all wild things. Find your forest wherever you get podcasts or at yourforestpodcast.com. That's yourforestpodcast.com. 
Well, we have watched the movie Quirrell. We didn't mention this is his very last movie. Mm. This is Fassbender's very last movie. He actually died like two weeks before it debuted. Very dramatic way. Dave, with your text you sent me and your huffing and puffing that I heard on the couch <laughs> beside me, I am pretty sure I kind of know your feelings or general feelings about this movie. So I'm going to get you to let me have it in a moment. <laughs> but uh, if just, someone came up to you. Just going to give it the ass. Yeah. Let's say that you, you know, we're at the farmer's market. We're looking at some <laughs> ripe tomatoes. <laughs> and this, <laughs> this guy comes up to me like, I've heard about this movie. Yeah, Quirrell. this grocer has in his hand this, the poster of Quirrell with the brick dick that's on there. Oh my and he's God. like, please, sir, can you explain to me what this movie is about? What would you say? What do you say this movie Disney is about? Disney produced this in the... <laughs> In the non-coder. Uh, I don't know how to describe this movie because mm-hmm. uh, it defies description, Kyle. It's a hallucination is what it is. Sure. Oh, man. I don't know. Kyle, I don't have a good explanation. Um, well, what's the setup? Like, just say what the setup is. Then. I don't know. I didn't understand what it was about. There's... Okay. Okay. Well, uh, there's a sailor who is... There's a sailor who's lusted after by several different men... Right. Who's also, I think, a serial killer. Yes. And um, he just wants to give his ass without uh, taking anyone else's ass. Is that fair? Well, okay. Well, sure. I mean, you're you're really focusing on that one scene. No, it's just sure. a funny okay. line. But I think, but th- I think that's a critical uh, character point, right? That he won't. Yes. He won't. He'll admit, take it. He won't give it. Yeah, he won't admit that he's gay. But he wants to be. It's so confusing. It's it's mm-hmm. a strange. I don't know. Well, I guess we'll talk about it. That's why it's hard to sum up because it's not really a narrative. There's no story, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think intentionally so. Yes. this is very much like a mood piece with a lot of strange things that happen. Yes, and in my opinion, you're gonna lock into it. Or you're not. Like, there, there is no middle ground, I don't think, on this movie very much. But before I start to editorialize before and tell you, you my off. feelings, <laughs> how did, tell me your thoughts and feelings on this movie. I'll say, I mean, I, the one thing I text you, other than making jokes about some of the stupid things that were happening, is um, mm-hmm. you get the sense that this is a manipulation or a corruption of an actual story. So, there mm-hmm. are moments throughout watching this where you feel like there was, I mean, it turns out it was based on a book and there's no information yes. about what the book is actually about uh, that I could find, but there's something fascinating by how intentionally bad this movie is. Like these are professional actors that I think have been directed to be terrible at delivering all of their yes. lines. Which um, I just didn't just interject. Also seems to be a Fassbinder thing. He really uh, enjoyed people saying things in very um, awkward or awkward, monotone, flat. That's the word I'm trying to look for. These flat deliveries. Yes, he didn't want flat. you to emote a lot when he, you said his his lines that he wrote. In my my reading of that is that he cared more about what was being said than how it was being said. But uh, anyways, that's a Fassbinder thing. Yeah. So it's it's a strange experience. I think mm-hmm. it is. Somewhat graphic. I mean, in the sense that they don't pull away from these men having... I mean, the sex is also fairly abusive, I think. And there's not a single tender love scene. It's generally borderline rape. (laughs) I wouldn't even say borderline in some cases, but... So, it's kind of like it's, uh, it's shocking. And I think that for me, 
and maybe this is just old fashionedness. I feel like that hidden plot of like manipulating a murder scene uh, would have made this easier to watch. But I kept getting pulled in so many different directions. I mean, for example, as you know, this, the setup in some parts are very theatrical and stage. So yes. you get very <laughs> weird feelings about what your like what your relationship is supposed to be with any of these characters. The narration is strange. It disappears halfway through the film. But there's different narrators too, because sometimes it's his like boss and sometimes it's like an unknown oh, narrator. When he's, yeah, when he's recording himself. And sometimes it's him that's narrating it. So it, it's not always the same narrator. It's very either. strange. And then the uh not cutaways, what do you call them? Like the quotes. Oh like the just the graphics. Like yeah. there's some words that just pop up. Bright, and sometimes white. they're quotes from novels. Sometimes it's the director talking to yeah. you. Sometimes it's a made up quote. Like it's very theatrical. And I, I found it very pretentious. So it's it's hard to understand as a viewer what you're supposed to be, like what your relationship is with the story. It is very intellectual because we can have a discussion about it at this stage. So it's not, you know, it's not pornographic. It's not designed no. to arouse. It's not hmm. it's not off kilter. I mean it's off kilter, but uh it's it's a film. It's an art piece, right? It's like walking yeah. into a contemporary art gallery. I generally don't like uh, what I see when I go to contemporary art galleries, but when you read the essay they accompany it, you can be like, oh, okay. So that's what that swath of blue means. Yeah. Okay. But I hated it. So uh, this is not a movie I'd ever recommend anyone to watch or to watch again, but it is fascinating. I was fascinated by all the tight pants. I went into some of my thoughts and feelings. And the, and the awkward thing is that I don't necessarily disagree with anything you have said thus far, okay. except for one piece. It's just that my feelings are the exact opposite. I kind of really enjoyed this movie. And well, enjoyed is a weird word to say. Identified a lot with what was happening okay. in this movie and the emotion that was coming out from it. And maybe I just kind of innately understood, I guess, the the intent behind what is or what I assume the intent is behind the filmmaker doing it. Because you're right. These people are not acting like real people. They are saying stuff in very flat manners. Like, yes, the acting is bad <laughs> i wouldn't say in that a traditional sense yeah in a yeah. traditional sense but then everything else is so theatrical so it, what it allowed me to do i guess is just really focus on okay how are he how how is fassbender placing people in the scene what is being said mm -hmm. what is he trying to communicate in each one so it turned into an intellectual exercise for me and then weirdly enough i did have a, a, a one emotional response later on in the movie but for the vast majority of this it was an intellectual thing i was locking in with not an emotional locking in with I saw a great many critics say, and I kind of agree, although I don't know if I'd be so flippant as, as what they communicated, which is, unless you're gay, you will not understand this movie on a fundamental mm. level. Okay. And where I kind of agree with that is that, yes, this is very much a metaphorical examination of what it feels like sometimes to A, be closeted and B, trying to make sense of that. Mm. While also having a murderous plot line. I understand how there's some weird like correlations here. He cut but out that guy's it, nipple. It was just this, the yeah. most random thing. Anyways, keep going. I, I don't think it's a mistake that, it, that this main person who I would say, yes, is struggling with his identity. However you want to define that. Is struggling with his identity. Is kind of unmoored and this purgatory island with these really weird characters who has a very toxic relationship with his own brother and then falls in love, I say, falls in love with a man who looks exactly like his brother. Mm, you don't think that that was... And it's played by the same actor, but isn't they're not the same people, which took me a while to figure that out. That was out, the same actor. It's, it's the same actor, oh. but it's not 
the same character. Interesting. <laughs> and actually, that happens a couple times where different actors, I think at least, unless I totally missed the point, different actors are playing different characters. It wasn't that he dressed him up as his brother to frame him. It was the actual same actor. Well, maybe you should look that up. I'm going to look I it thought, up right now. Because they looked very similar to me. Yes. Because I actually thought it was his brother for a while. I'm like, oh, this is going really weird. Yeah, But yeah. then it wasn't. Oh, you're right. Robert and Gil. Yeah. Okay. You're totally yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Interesting. So, it's the same actor playing two different people. You could have such a Freudian reading into this about like projections and families and love and lust and that sort of thing. But I think I was the most surprised by is that when you read articles about this movie, which I did before I started watching it, it's like, it's so provocative and, and nearly pornographic. And I'm like, it's, I guess, but I was anticipating, I guess, something much more lurid than what I eventually got. Mm. This is very much an art film. And even the sex scenes, as like violent as they are, they don't really show anything. Like no. we never see like naked men having sex. You see like a butt here and there and the architecture all looks like penises. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's like you never actually see a naked man in no. this movie, which I actually thought was interesting that that never happens. Mm -hmm. For me, what I really locked in with was Corel's journey of self-discovery. I felt some similarities to like my own life journey of like trying to figure out like, what is it that I'm looking for? What do I want? Maybe this is what I'm looking for. And that turning violent and being like, oh no, I guess this is not, this is not what I enjoy. It's a hard movie to talk about because the plot I don't think is really all that important. Really, at the end of the day, it really is a movie to sit in and bask in and, and uh, I guess feel it wash over you so that you can take what you want. This is also a movie that I could not recommend to the vast majority of people in my oh, life. No. Yeah. Or just like the normal moviegoer. Like no. anyone, not to throw them under the bus every week. If your favorite movie is like Avengers Endgame, I'm not going to like, oh, you need to watch Corel. <laughs> Maybe they do. That. Maybe they do, <laughs> Maybe. right? No, I, I agree with you. I mean, I was make, I was thinking watching it last night, which is how I feel with many of the movies we watch. Instead of trailer reaction videos, we should just be live streaming our facial expressions while we watch some of these <laughs> right. films. I mean, I, you brought up an interesting thing, like what is pornographic or something mean? You know, I, I think those are interesting ideas. Like I was watching this and I was thinking, would a gay, a homosexual man be aroused by this other than fetishism? I mean, it's not tender. It's not. Yeah. It's not. I it's very would say weird. yes. But I could, again, I'm only speaking by myself. Just I, th I think yeah. just seeing men. Beautiful men. Beautiful men. Yeah. Interact with each other. I think that is the eroticism because I do think this movie is erotic, but you're right. It's always couched in violence. Yeah. So much of this is couched in violence, which in the 1982 context probably pretty normal and true well i mean you can make the argument uh heterosexual pornography is the same thing i mean there's a reason why it's become i mean i think men have always done this but the term right now is the objectification of let's say women in the female gaze if you watch mm -hmm. heterosexual porn for the most part <laughs> i mean you might as well just have a sex doll in it it's quite violent in its intent so it's, it was kind of it's interesting like you brought up how this is an intel. I think that's, I didn't check the runtime except for one, like I think a third in, I started worrying that this was just going to be right. this pantomime of a movie. But about halfway, I was like, well, I have to keep watching this, not because I'm enjoying it, but now I'm seeing there's layers here. There's like, you know, it's, in it's, it's intent is to be weird. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I was thinking it's a fever uh, dream. Like the cinematography is so weird. Like the lens is always skewed, right? Everything's sort of off kilter. Yeah, they're using like fisheye or wide angle lenses in many cases. So it like distorts people's faces. Yeah, it's like keystoned, right? It's not yeah. fisheyed. So it's not like a 90s music video. It's like, yeah, it's keystone. Everything's uh, diagonal. 
and mm -hmm. uh, warped and oversaturated. And he uses such aggressive lighting. He's so yes. soft, but like harsh at the same. It's very weird. It's well, if you, if you read up about Fassbender, like he made his name in the theater first. Like that is mm -hmm. what he became known for. And so he brought a lot of his calling cards or the things that he was known for into the film world when he transferred over because he made exclusively like avant-garde films for the first five years of his career which means 20 films probably <laughs> um like, <laughs> yeah uh, honestly but so this is kind of a return back to avant-garde like framing and lighting and all that kind of stuff but with the same like flat style and i think that almost inconsistency where it's like this is west side story but then acted as if nothing weird is going on mm. <laughs> like you know what i mean like it's it, it, there does seem to be like this uh disagreement between how it's being portrayed versus what is actually being said and discussed again i think it's very all very intentional on on fassbender's part but like i don't think at any point you're supposed to think oh this is like a realistic depiction like you say fever dream i agree like this is very much like this is me or this is fassbender coming out and being like this is my reality but it is not your reality i need you to be coming into what my reality and what my point of view of this story is my fever dream is seeing you both bathed in blood i wonder with projects like this you know how much of it is intuitive or how much has the intent how much of it is an intent to spark some type of intellectual conversation and then is the conversation supposed to be about being queer or is it about how it's shot it's weird in this case because i didn't finish this film wondering or trying to empathize with being closet or being gay i just became obsessed with how weird visually mm -hmm. this film is like i i'm not offended by watching these men make out or give each other hand jobs or to right. be raped over a table for dice games or whatever it's not i don't want to turn it off because i feel grossed out by it but i also didn't leave thinking oh like what a hard time it would be you know in the whenever this is supposed to be like the 1950s or whatever being a lonely sailor and wrestling with my sexual identity i don't really get that narrative out of it either it's distracting the choreographed uh, quote-unquote fight dance scenes and the murders it's just it's just hard to understand well i, I will say that there's sometimes the danger of being metaphorical or symbolic is that people will just not understand what it not is you're trying it. to communicate or just imprint what they want which is almost what i fear i'm doing but whatever that's how this movie spoke to me because mm -hmm. what i kept being confronted with is that it's it's hard to find but i think that there is this deep love that runs throughout this film because i do think that Quirrell loves his brother he just can't say it he can't show it in any type of like constructive way and i think he does want to have a relationship with a man but keeps going back and be like i can't i can't i can't so who knows how this relationship with his like captain is gonna go i, I would assume badly and poorly <laughs> uh, but who knows but he is a serial killer at the same time like he is he is exploding in rage and evil but there's this love that he can't communicate and i think that that is something that men specifically struggle with even in a modern context i would say getting better with newer generations but showing love and showing affection to other men is sometimes frowned upon mm. definitely in certain cultures and different time periods and this is him struggling with trying to figure out how to do that effectively and i also think it's very eye-opening like the only woman character in this entire film is also shown to be like very jealous mm -hmm. of any time men show affection to another man like she only wants to be the one there is a very much a misogynistic reading you can put into that but like that is fascinating that the only female character is jealous of male 
male love when you would think well she's the only woman around she would be like the object of desire and it's an interesting choice too to cast or to write that character as a older woman mm-hmm. you know and not a ravishing beauty in a traditional sense right uh, there are two prostitutes that show up at the end just as sort of side pieces like one sure. to get slapped and there are the uh, traditional like, attractive european women so there's an intent there uh, for i can't remember is it jean marceau or whatever this famous french actress to mm. play that part and she doesn't even have sex with any of them she sits in a chair and verbally abuses them while they get off it's it's Correct. weird yeah there's some very psychosexual things that are going on yeah in the underground, in, in, in gay culture and hookup culture and stuff like that, you very explicitly are going to be confronted with that sort of thing where violence and sex are kind of intertwined with one another. Sex and violence. I don't think there's ever been more iconic duo. I don't want to just brush over the fact, if I have not made it very clear, there are so many hot men in this movie. It's crazy, yeah. Like, they're just beautiful men to look at. And the camera knows that. And we, yeah, we are very much like, let's get you in the skimpiest outfit we possibly can. I think that was also the interesting thing for me, having grown up in the 80s and 90s. You're just kind of used to that for like women characters to walk around. Like, of course, they're going to wear that. If you're a comic book fan like me, it's like, let's put them in the most impractical clothing possible just to accentuate like their breasts and midsection and that sort of thing. And to see that in a film, but it be men is kind of just an interesting take. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but for, for me, I was like, oh, there's, there's another hot man right there. Let's show him like bulging out of his like muscle shirt. Tank top or yeah, or naked covered in coal yeah. or whatever. The guy he murders when he turns on, he's like in a thong. I think it was kind of yes. random. It was like full mm-hmm. butchy. I wasn't expecting that because the front looked like boxers. <laughs> right. and then it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we made a joke last week or the week before or just generally how the... 80s idea of female nudity is oh, there's always uh, a hooker or cheerleader or a college student that's topless. It's mm-hmm. like going to become mandatory in every comedy and action film. Well, not just comedy too, but like the slasher film was such a big thing in yeah. the 80s. You need, you we'll need come across that very soon, I'm sure. We're just like, oh, we need a topless scene just yeah. so that people will come and buy tickets to this. And, uh, you know, in the same, maybe this is trying to do a similar thing, but trying to make this so casual that every background male is sweaty, oiled up, and topless. And they're not involved at all in the story. Nobody right. addresses them. Nobody even notices they exist. They're just, you know, they're just a tapestry <laughs> in the That's background true. for texture, right? It's not meant to be offensive, but I also, I don't know, maybe because I'm not queer, I didn't find it suggestive either. It was kind of, mm. that's why I feel like it was, um, what's the word I used before? Uh, pretentious. There's something over-intentional about it. I mean, I, yeah. I, I definitely think it's pretentious. I don't want to come across as saying it like, it is. It just didn't bother me that much. I mean, as soon as you have like a message from the director yeah. as a written text that pops up halfway through the film, it's like, okay, like, okay, yeah. <laughs> I get it. I mean, if you read anything up about Fastbender too, like he was kind of high on his own supply too. So, I mean, literally he how he died. Great. Yeah. And it also how he died, <laughs> but he was also violent in his real life too. Mm-hmm. Allegedly, I guess I should mm-hmm. point out, but we well, like, can tell, I, I mean, in the I think film. there's a lot of that infused within this film of yeah. him struggling with his own sexuality. I don't know if struggle is the right word. Him dealing with his own sexuality in a film format. Because a lot of this is sort of autobiographical. Not 100%. Some of his own experiences are thrust into this film. Thrust. No, it's all there. Yeah. When you do post, I think you'd be doing a lot of giggling. 
a lot of redacting. I'm like, oh, I can't yeah. let that keep going. Uh, the Alberta Podcast Network is uh, four and five <laughs> local podcasters. We no longer appear on the homepage. Uh. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But within that pretension, I guess, I guess, I guess my point of view is this is like, a film I can acknowledge is pretentious, but if I'm engaging with it, then I don't really care about the pretension all that mm. much. And if I'm not enjoying it, then I'm like, this is super fucking pretentious and I hate it. So I just happen to be on the positive side of things where it's like, I really want to see where this goes. I want to see what the conclusion is. I'm identifying with like with what is being communicated in this. And I just think all the shots are beautiful. Yes, the lighting is harsh. It's obviously on sets. None of this is realistic. It, it does remind me of the original West Side Story. Even when they fight, it feels like a West mm-hmm. Side Story sequence to me. Yeah, dense fighting. But it all worked. It is a metaphorical, symbolic portrayal. And I'm kind of along for the ride because I think everything is beautiful aesthetically, but also what is being, I don't know, uh, wrestled with. You know what we should have prepped for? Because I don't remember it well enough we should be comparing this to throw away your books. Mm. I think this has a more, a, a better narrative to latch on to than throw away your books. Sure. Personally. But I'm just thinking in terms of a pretense sure. auteur yeah, yeah. art and challenging cultural norms. I think, you know, the use of art film, uh, I'm sorry, college film type of uh, techniques where everything's so garish and over intentional. And, you know, there's a lot of violence in that sexual violence in that film too. Right. It's just a, a thought. I mean, you could, Bring in uh, Sweetback. You can bring in a lot of the films yep. we've watched that are... I'm trying to think if there's anything from 1982 already that we've seen. I don't know if there's anything Yes, this. Giorgio, of course, but... Uh... <laughs> I think we should really be comparing this to bed knobs and broomsticks. <laughs> I think that... Well, I mean, as a counterpoint, maybe. You, the machine, selects these interesting films uh, that stand out. Like, this is on the Criterion channel for a reason. Yep. I mean, this is not a bootleg of some... Uh, you know, bottom barrel, um, back bin of a porn shop type of uh, film. This is, you know, there's an art to it. And uh, it's not concerned whether you enjoy it as a film viewer. Yeah. It's unapologetic. Well, I think that's the other thing too. I think that there are some films, especially in like the VHS era, which we're talking about here in 1982, that became famous because you could go and rent them and just rewind and watch that one scene over and over and over again and teenage boys or even teenage girls would be like oh my gosh like this is this oh, yeah. is the scene i guess in a way you could do this there is again I, I do think this is an erotic film but i think if you are looking for pornography i don't know if this even hit, fits the bill 100 no. percent. like not what you really want if i'm going to rent like a, a gay love scene in a normal porno like that this is not what this is no I mean, if you're putting this on to masturbate or get turned on, you have to ask some questions about yourself (laughs) because there's so many psychological layers to this. It's not about Mm. uh, physical gratification. This thing is picking at, uh, yeah, like these uh, personal psychological problems, frankly, uh, questions. As a heterosexual uh, person, when you watch pornography, you don't watch it for the (laughs) storyline. Right, yeah, yeah. And it's never challenging you to question your sexuality or your uh, identity. <laughs> I mean, some of them go a little borderline uh, and then you get fetish culture, right? So, it's a lot like I think the distaste I had watching Throw Away Your Books, you know, and we got some criticism uh, about that review because we didn't get the artist's intent. And it's interesting to think about making art without worrying about the audience's uh, response. I-, I read an article this morning. That Lizzo's latest track is trying to be canceled because she used the word spaz and that's apparently offensive to people. And I was having a talk with my wife this morning over the wormhole or quantum, whatever that works, about this problem of 
like if you're a pop artist, how you automatically become beholden to your audience because your livelihood depends on selling something to somebody. And this is like sort of the inverse of that, where if you're just going to be an auteur, remember like three years ago, you said you hate that word? I do. And you just don't give a shit. That's where Quarrel lives, I think, where this guy pumped out 41 films. He doesn't give a fuck who's watching them. He's just putting them out there. That is the difference between like a commercial artist versus, I don't know what the inverse of that, a non-commercial artist, I guess. A crazy person. Because I just look at uh, David Cronenberg just released his new film in the theaters, which I do want to go and see. But like, he has never been one of those people. I'm making a hundred million dollar grossing movie. He doesn't give a shit. I'm going to have people have sex with cars or I'm going to have this weird thing ripped out of a body. And if you don't like it, you don't like it. I don't care. However, Steven Spielberg kind of has to play the game of like, can I actually get away with this? Let's be reasonable or else I'm going to alienate a huge portion of the people who might come and see this. You can't even argue. I mean, at least with Spielberg, maybe some of the hate he gets is that he doesn't even it doesn't exist for him he just lives in the blockbuster world i mean i don't know him personally but if you look at his work uncle stevie i I can get on the phone uh, he doesn't seem like somebody who uh has a mind in that sort of extreme place he might privately who knows i mean he's still an artist but like there are photographers i meet that live in the commercial space and then there's finer photographers and there's people that straddle both. And I think that uh, some people, like if you look at a certain group of wedding photographers, their interest is only in weddings and producing photographs mm. that a couple would like on trend. Then there's wedding photographers that are street photographers that want a documentary style thing. And then right. there's like a small subgroup of fine art wedding photographers, you know, for example. This guy is like that small, small subgroup. <laughs> He made a film covered in brick penises. Like, he doesn't care if anybody watches it, you know? It's interesting. If you want that kind of thought process, I guess you should watch this film. I mean, it's not a bad art project. (laughs) I mean, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Of course, I'm going to recommend, like, if you are interested in pushing boundaries, seeing something provocative a queer filmmaker making a film about queer people, then yeah, I would recommend doing this. I totally recognize the fact that most people will ter- come away from this being like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. Why Why did I sit down and watch this? Yeah. And so I'm always of the opinion of like, I enjoy this. I think that the director gets exactly what he wants, but I totally respect the fact that most people are not going to enjoy it. <laughs> and that's okay. Like, you don't have to enjoy it. This was made kind of for me. <laughs> and it's just going to be one of those things that is never going to be broadly popular. Yeah. Unless the I mean, culture really changes really quickly. Well, I, I, and again, this is a broad generalization, but like most art films, I would be surprised if this was popular in the queer community either. It's got a lot of troubling aspects of, sure. to it. So whether people can identify you know, with an art film in general, like we would assume, it's like when we do our ratings, is a movie rewatchable because you're a film geek or for the general public? And as we've learned, for example, with my future wife, uh, most of the stuff we watch, she will not even consider putting on because she has no interest whatsoever, even though she likes watching content, you know, and she loves movies and she loves TV shows. Anything that we watch, she's it's like a blacklist. She's like, absolutely no, no interest whatsoever. So she like Victor Victoria. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, she wouldn't have put it on if I wasn't watching it. This is an interesting film in that way. It's challenging. More films need Chimney Cox. Well, let's do this. Let's do some backstory here then. So this movie opened up on August 31st, 1982. It is currently rated 3.6 out of 5 on Letterboxd. 
but has a 6.6 on IMDb. That's no surprise, I don't think. No available rating on Metacritic. Rotten Tomatoes from 13 critics, it's at 62%. And uh, from 2,500 plus users, it's at 71%. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. The only streaming option currently is to watch it on the Criterion channel. At least in Canada, as far as we know. Its budget was 4 million Deutschmarks. Do not know how much money this made, but it's plot description, Dave. This is this will help you. This is how you could describe that farmer's market grocer who came up and talked to you. <laughs> a handsome sailor is drawn into a vortex of sibling rivalry, murder, and explosive sexuality. That was close. Just not succinct. Yeah. <laughs> now is the time of the show, of course, where we get to play everyone's favorite game. Guess, Guess that, that tag. tag. This is part of the show where we get to play a game. I don a nice blazer, the long microphone that Bob Barker used to use. And you know when you go to a movie theater, you're watching Crimes of the Future from Cronenberg. And as you go walking to the theater, you see a row of films, of upcoming films that are coming out with their nice visuals, their floating heads. And there is usually a piece of text somewhere on the poster, which is called the tagline to entice you to watch that movie in a few weeks' time. One of these is the real tagline that was on the poster for Quarrel. Two of them are completely made up by me. Please say it in German. <laughs> uh, guten Tag. <laughs> Willkommen. That's the other one I should have said. Dave, is the tagline... <laughs> Fuck. Murder isn't the only sticky situation he's found himself in. <laughs> is it... <laughs> is it two... It'll take you into a surreal world of passion and sexuality further than most would dare to go. Or is it Sex, Murder, Brother, Lover, the last film by Rainier Werner Fassbinder? Mm, that's a tough one. My gut says one, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go two. Uh, it'll take you into a surreal world of passion and sexuality further than most would dare I'm to go. I'm surprised this thing had a tagline, but uh, yeah, let's do that one. Yeah, you, were, you are correct. <laughs> you didn't think the first one had a chance? <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't go with, uh, he's about to give it his ass. Oh, all right. Well, this stars Brad Davis as Quarrel, Franco Nero as Lieutenant Seblon, uh, Jean Moreau as Lysiane, I think. She says it weird. Like, she spends her name weird. Lysiane. Lysiani. Laurent Mallet as Roger Batal and Burkhard Driest as Mario. Anything you want to say about those those people? No. I, the star was in Chariots of Fire, your favorite movie. He also died of AIDS, which is sad. Yeah, he died of AIDS, but was married to a woman. Had a kid. But yes, had relationships with men outside of the marriage. He does have a son who is exactly my age. Oh. Interestingly enough. And uh, does some music and acting as well. Oh. So his his... Son continues on the tradition. He had some pretty big recognition throughout the 80s. Yes, with Chariots of Fire, but uh, Midnight Express Midnight is the other Express, big one yes. that he got good reviews for. So who who really knows? But it looked like he might have been poised to break big over in Hollywood and stuff like that more than over in Europe. Maybe. I mean, it's good looking, but I mean, those are three films about gay men. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if he would have well, hit the call. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that was more, I mean, whatever. But would somebody with that CV hit the mainstream? Probably not. And it doesn't matter. He tragically passed away like, what, two years after this film? 85 yeah, or 84? 41 is how old he was, yeah. too. Was super young. Thank you. I, f- I appreciate that. I feel super young, too. 
You know, I'm only 44. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I haven't been yeah, called super yeah. young in a long time. I feel feel good about myself. Maybe a different qualifier than super, but uh, fuck. Cinematography by two people: Xavier Schwarzenberger and Joseph Vavra. Schwarzenberger, his top four on I'm on IMDb are Auto der Film from 1985, Der Stil from 1983, Donawaza from 1984, and Krombemuli mm. from mm. 1998. Sir, can you can you give those to me again? I I wasn't paying no. attention. <laughs> no, Vavra, his top four are this film, Kamikaze 1989, which uh, very confusingly comes out in 1982. <laughs> Alpen Saga, a TV show that ran from 76 to 78. And then he did Camera and Electrical for Lil Marlene in 1981. So those are the four things that he's most known for. I mean, well, German stuff is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, bring that up. I was surprised that this is in uh, overdubbed English. Like why? But they are speaking English too yeah. in some of those scenes. So that yeah. was what actually threw me off at first. Like, oh, I honestly thought this was going to be in German the entire time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have American actors. I th- well, at least yep. the lead is. You know, they are all speaking English. The dub over is their voice. So it's just maybe a sync error or something. And it's just, yeah. or maybe the way they mic'd it up is intentionally meant to be flat, like you're bringing up. But uh, so awkward. I'd love if these characters could meet the characters from Dust Boot. I want to dress up like that police officer. <laughs> the, with the overcoat or just in the bondage gear? Just in the bondage <laughs> the gear. The leather daddy. Yeah. Written by Rainier Werner Fassbinder and Burkhard Driest, based on the novel by Jean Genet, directed by Rainier Werner Fassbinder. Dave, way back in 1947, oh, a novel is published called Quarrel of Brest, B-R-E-S-T. It's the town of Brest. So Quarrel of Brest. However, it is published anonymously. Only 460 copies are printed. But later on, it is revealed that the author was Jean Genet. Do you have any, does that fire anything in your head? No. So he's a pretty big deal. (laughs) Jean Genet was a pretty big deal. Even at the time, in 1947, he would have published about five novels, a few plays, bunch of poetry and a lot of it featured what is described and i'm quoting here provocative depictions of homosexuality and criminality Mm, go figure one of his biggest fans is uh your buddy jean paul sartre Mm, mm. and sartre even published this very lengthy essay on genet's work called saint genet it's all about his work and everything and sartre explained uh why he wanted to do that he wrote that he did it to prove that genius is not a gift, but the way out that one invents in desperate cases. Wow. Guys should start writing books on philosophy. Some good language. Basically to prove like people thought like you were born and you're this huge genius, but you could not possibly be a genius if you're from the lower classes. And sorry, was like, well, he was a criminal and went to jail a bunch of times and he is a genius. So maybe it's something that you come to. Genet has this wild life. His mother was a prostitute who tried to raise him, but eventually he was taken away from her, put into foster care. He eventually left that foster care when he was discovered wearing makeup one night when his foster family came home. But also probably more to do with the fact that he stole a large sum of money from them. That probably was (laughs) the bigger reason, I'm going to guess. Half a dozen (laughs) He goes into the military, is dishonorably discharged for having sex with men. And then he starts doing petty crimes such as stealing and prostituting himself. And then he begins writing and becoming involved in social issues. In fact, the Black Panthers in the United States invite him to come and meet with them in 1970, where he goes to the trial of their leader, Huey Newton. 
publishes a bunch of articles about them and the movement. Plus, in that same year, or maybe the year after, he goes and visits the Palestinian refugee camps. And both of these experiences he would document in this very famous memoir that he writes. Fascinating life. You should go up and read up on him. He's an interesting guy. But back to this anonymous novel, Querelle of Breast. Do you know, there was illustrations inside of this book as well. Do you know who did those illustrations? No. A Mr. Jean Cocteau, <laughs> who would go on to be a very famous uh, director mm-hmm. who would make a bunch of classic films, but Beauty and the Beast, Orpheus, or a couple of his more famous films. He was also gay. And the illustrations for this book, which you can find if you go into Google Books and type in Corella Brass, you can see the French book and all the illustrations are there. They are um, like very explicit, <laughs> like very explicit. It's a whole lot of dong. You're seeing so much dong and um, maybe maybe accentuated to such a degree that would not be at- anatomically correct. I'm just going to say <laughs> literally a third leg. Yeah, <laughs> I will say too. The, the, the book follows basically the same plot as far as I can tell. It's like a bisexual sailor goes to this island, commits murders <laughs> and finds lovers like it's ba- essentially the same thing. Now, Fassbinder was also a bit of a rabble rouser as a filmmaker. He was born just before the United States occupied Germany at the end of World War II. I, not to get into it, this is this can take so long, but his family was probably like the bourgeois, and so they were kind of looked down upon after that occupation started because of how they probably helped the Nazis a little bit. Anyways, eventually he gets sent to boarding school, which he repeatedly tries to run away from. He would eventually go and move to Cologne with his dad, where he helped out with money by doing small jobs. And at night, he started writing these poems, short plays, other stories. He then found friends with some filmmakers, began writing sound and doing some other odd jobs on film sets. This is where he would make his first couple of short films, financed by his boyfriend at the time. But he'd come to a much greater acclaim in the theater world for his direction, where he had these very intricate movements, then followed by static actors delivering their lines, which would then he would carry over when he began directing feature films. He was very much different than the other auteurs of the time because he had his hands on almost every level of production. So design, sound, lighting, writing, directing, like he kind of was doing little bits of everything. And to add to that, he was very young uh, and, and became extremely prolific. So he makes... 10 films between 1969 and 1971. It's like crazy. he's just a ton of them. Crazy. Eventually he gets into critical acclaim, but his first films are these avant-garde films. He then go into like exploring melodrama in the 70s. There his more famous films are The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, Ali, Fear Eats the Soul, Like a Bird on a Wire, and Fox and His Friends. Then he would start to have this international success that would come in the late 70s and early 80s with films such as Germany and Autumn, The Marriage of Maria Braun, Lily Marlene, Lola, and Veronica Voss. Uh, Corral would be his last, his very last film. It's hard not to see why Fassbender would be interested in the book because he infused the movie with some very light autobiographical information. He himself was bisexual. He was also not free of controversy, let's let's just say. He got criticism from both sides. So conservative critics hated that he was so open about his homosexual relationships and how he portrayed them in his films. But then feminist and queer critics didn't like him because in more than one film, he has uh, explicit moments of misogyny and homophobia. So he's been hitting, being hit from both sides. Like neither side is all that happy. Now, whether it was a symptom of his heavy criticism 
or not. Who knows? He was consuming so much drugs. Like, just so much drugs. Think of, like, that scene from Scarface with the mound of cocaine. That was, like, a Tuesday for Fassbender. Which is what killed him. Mm -hmm. His current girlfriend at the time comes home late one night and finds him dead. But apparently... This is where it gets really weird and creepy because I was like, I need to know more information, but I also don't want to spend 17 hours researching this guy. She was expressly told that she was not allowed to enter his room unless she was invited. Okay. But she hears the TV going on and not his very loud snoring that she would normally hear at the same time. So she makes the decision to actually open up the door. But there he was with a lit cigarette still in his mouth and blood dripping from his nose. And he was he was dead. Oh, dude. He'd already started writing his next film, which obviously is never made. And we've talked about how this was a departure of style for him. When Corel was released, though, the response was fairly tepid. Because it was such a departure from what he had been doing, many critics thought that there was this disappointing ending to the talent that they saw. Since then, it's become either a cult or kind of a minor classic in some people's eyes. A lot of queer critics now have reevaluated it because of how it explores male relationships, sexuality, and sensuality. But... Uh, I feel I should know so much more of the context of this movie, but like that's basically some of the backstory for, for it. No, I don't know. There's no should. I mean, this is not the only guy that's making avant-garde queer cinema. Mm-hmm. It's just a weird film that uh, that's being reappraised. Like so many things, uh, people are looking back in hindsight and wondering, uh, oh, I, I never thought someone actually addressed this topic and it turned out people did. Just nobody gave a shit about it until now. No. I must know everything about every film ever made. See, the biggest thing for me, too, is there's that conversation. I think it's near the end where even Coral mentions the fact that, like, he could never fall in love with a man. Mm. He's fine, like, having sex with them, but he could never fall in love with them. And that it's really women that he's going to fall in love with and marry. This is all that, like, internalized homophobia melted into there. So Mm -hmm. I think that there is some of this really fascinating stuff baked into this movie which i think is why queer critics are kind of reevaluating it's like oh there's a lot of conversation about stuff that people are still fighting with within themselves right now how would this how do they phrase that i think they said like no work of art is free Mm. i think is how they term it which is why he pays for sex is because to enjoy the work of art of another person's body, he feels he should have to pay for it. Do you agree with that sentiment? Is, <laughs> is, is, should art be something that you take for free? Or well, is art something you have to pay for? Uh, I'm trying to understand the question. As a consumer or an audience? Because mm-hmm. uh, I actually disagree with the statement, I think but I understand his point of view as a character. In a, in a capitalist term, this also came up this morning I was talking to Helen. I think... Yeah, I think we're talking about how it's so annoying that every machine has you tip now. Like, why the fuck am I, I tipping for a fucking cup of coffee? Anyways, you do a valuable service, but also I don't think I should have to pay an extra 15% for this coffee. Yeah, <laughs> unless you did something interesting for yeah. it, right? Like, uh, that reach around was really appreciated. <laughs> but was it as good as Rick's reach around? I don't know. <laughs> so, like, in, in many countries in Europe... Uh, in this, uh, so uh, my example is classic and fine art museums are free or are subsidized by the government. And so you have a deeper sense of cultural access. We just went to the Esker Foundation here in Calgary, and that's a free contemporary art museum. And it's not commercial. You're not there to buy right. art. Uh, there's, I mean, I don't think people realize Calgary has one of the highest per capita saturations of, of galleries. There's so much mm. 
available visual art venues, but most of them are commercial. In that very strict sense, I think as an audience, it should be free. You know, should a movie like Quarrel require a ticket of admission on a cultural level? Maybe not. When you manufacture these things, everything costs money. The reality is you can't, even this, which is such an awkward production, what is it, 4 million Deutschmarks? I don't have 4 million Deutschmarks to give somebody to, to invent this or to shoot it myself. Uh, even when we saw low budget films like Spielberg's Duel, or there's one we watched this year, I think is like $400,000. Losing Ground right. was like under yeah, a million yeah. bucks. Oh, it was uh, Smithereens. I don't have $500,000 to make a film. Right. It has to be subsidized by somebody, a grant or a, or a producer. So I don't know. It depends on what level you're trying to talk about free or cost. You can also talk about emotional and, uh, mm. you know, personal costs. Like I'm reasonably certain I can presume that Fassbinder did not enjoy making this film. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not something I think he was like giggling like, oh, this is so much fun. He probably uh, must have been facing a lot of his own personal attention. Uh, and probably snorting a fuck ton of coke to just get through some of these scenes. I sure. mean, how do you shoot? I mean, to, to project my own feelings onto it, this feels like I have to get this out of my system. Yeah, it's a therapy session. It's like, yeah. I've been obsessing over this, and this novel kind of has a, a similar storyline. Because mm -hmm. one thing I didn't mention, two other directors were going to make this film before he came aboard. This was not like something, I think he saw the opportunity to like explore this and like this is what i'm gonna make two guys who is schlesinger and uh yeah uh straw dogs uh peckinpah 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 was gonna make this like how the fuck does that work you know? that would have been that would have been bad i mean that'd yeah. be crazy just imagine the rape scene from straw dogs for, for two, two hours, hours. <laughs> yeah. shouldn't laugh about that but that is what this movie would have been there's a cost to everything i what was the original how did we phrase the original question do we have to pay for it well i i, I yeah i wish i could remember the exact quote i just have this point form and then i know we just watched this but maybe it was five days ago when i actually watched <laughs> this movie and now sometimes i forget like what did this note mean but i think that was the idea of like all right should pain. a work of art be yeah. free uh, my, my opinion is yes i mean i hate the conversations of even though i bring it up every week about box offices as if the new jurassic park movie right, is right. more artistic because it made more money than right. everything everywhere all at once or something like that right it's like one of those i think has a more artistic quote-unquote merit mm -hmm. but sure the other one made more money but does that make it better no and if something is free for me to go and enjoy like a piece of architecture or something in the park i can get as just as much joy from that than going spending money at a gallery and watching something being mm -hmm. hung on the wall and the inverse is true too. Maybe it's like there's something I would really enjoy going and going well, to a thing, gallery yeah, for. Like that's the thing. I, I think putting dollar values to something is a problem. Is, is a problem. It skews to uh, the difference between individual value and societal values, right? So mm -hmm. uh, what you and I enjoy when we watch a film is different than somebody that wants to watch Jurassic World Dominion or whatever the fuck that travesty yeah. is called. But the irony is that uh, I mean you've already seen it, but I would pay the fifteen bucks to go watch Top Gun. <laughs> Right, uh, yeah. Mike, whatever from thing was making fun of me for liking the Fast franchise. Right, I, sure. I don't put yeah. that in the same conversation as watching Quarrel. Yeah, two separate things. I mean, we we talk about the scoring system. It's such a random thing. Like, I'll give. I'm. We're gonna watch it. I'm biased. I'm gonna give Blade Runner five out of five. I'll tell you right now. But does that mean it's because it's a perfect movie? No, it's just something that speaks to me personally. So right. It was that personal thing, what your own taste is. Yeah, it's weird. I think right? the, where this ties into is that earlier in the film. Again, I forget which character actually says it, but they say each man kills the things he loves. Mm -hmm. That's the woman. She's that's her song. Right. She sings that every 
Yeah, every time she. Oh, that's right. That's a song which is like talking about like a, a loop that gets stuck in your head. It's not a very good song. No, it's shit. Yeah. But it, <laughs> it, but it fits the mood that's I think right. of the yeah. of the movie and the in that uh, instrumental plays like over on loop in some scenes like over and over and over again. When you live in a world like that, violence and stuff like that, that's probably yes her point of view. I just realized. Speaking of Freud, that's his mom, isn't it? Probably. I, I think that's probably what yeah. we're supposed to read into. Sorry, it. keep going. Yeah. And that each man kills the things he loves. I think that there is an essence of truth on that. I don't know if we are, I, I'm not taking that as to be super literalism, like I'm going to kill my wife and family. But also at a certain point you do move on or you yourself cause the things that you love the most to <laughs> fade away. Yeah. Oh, or maybe, yeah. To become I mean, a member of society, you have to let go of your childhood things. It's just another way of saying the yeah, same you change, thing. Yeah, change, right? Yeah. Like a person changes. Helen and I talk about this too, and we have a lot of, friends whose relationships seem more complex than ours but you know we were different people when we were like i met her when i was 22 so i was a much angrier person then. you were a super super young man at that point (laughs) yeah that was a piece of shit frankly but um you know it's like if you evolve together then yeah you could argue that you kill the thing that you used to love like i used to love drama i used to love fighting and drinking and yelling and being angry at the world. Actually, we used to embrace that. I think I tried to break up with her once because I was getting too happy. You know, that shitty (laughs) 20s things, right? Yeah, one of the shitty toxic point of views. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, at a very uh, vague level, you could say that. You know, so reflective of of a sick mind, isn't it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you accept that as as an axiom to life. You know, if you say, oh, everybody's going to kill the thing they love. I mean, that's pretty... That's pretty depressing. And uh, is it any wonder the director who framed this uh, OD'd on drugs? I mean, I don't know if that's actually true, right? I don't want it to right. be. <laughs> I think it's true for a lot of people. I think mm. I think maybe the trick is to get away from that mindset. That's mm. the true mark of moving on. Is like, you know, I don't have to be self-destructive all the time. I can choose the things that I love and, and lean into it. I'm thinking about that. Maybe that's the... Uh, subtext uh, and Mm. subconscious but why this film is so violent because Mm -hmm. he doesn't want to necessarily believe that's true i mean there's a cynicism because it's in the film but uh, it's not romanticized he doesn't make the people happy right and 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 partly like why i find it a little bit hard to read like the very final again with his like captain or whatever Mm. who's been lusting after him for the entire movie but he's he's also trans right which is like is that supposed to be like a better love he's not trying yeah, the captain is not lusting after him as a gay man. He wants to be a woman. So it's kind of true. very nuanced at the end. I, I was very confused too. I was like, I don't I don't know what's going on anymore. This is why I would do want to rewatch this movie at some point because I feel like I only scratched the surface of understanding should, some of the metaphor and like and symbolism that's going on. Yeah, I'll just read your blog about it. I couldn't sit through it. <laughs> <laughs> you can write the blog. You can be the Quarrel blogger. We should actually talk about writing a blog. Quarrel of blog. That's what it'll be called. Anonymous, um, except we just announced that we're doing it. Yeah. The last thing I was just going to say, I just found it an interesting thing because for the longest time I was like, are they never going to show two men kissing in mm. this film? Because it doesn't, it takes a long time for you to see two men actually kiss. It's past the halfway point. Yeah. You've seen sex, you've seen violence and stuff, but it's like finally when the non brother and him actually kiss, it's like, oh, they're actually kissing. <laughs> That's yeah. actually, I think intentionally that is the moment of like, oh my gosh, this is so much more erotic than that weird sex scene Mm -hmm. we saw at the beginning Mm -hmm. just two men kissing we don't actually have to bring sex into it yet nothing sexier than two hot men smooching yeah i guess you travel that line with corel because the narration is talking about how 
first he'll he won't give it he'll just take it mm-hmm. and then he talked about when he's with the leather daddy that's the first time he kissed a man in the mouth i think right i think that's what the right. narrative but you don't see on the screen yep. and then that whole scene with brother lookalike who's escaping the law was so hard to, hard to contextualize like why he appears but uh, well, please, yeah. but i think now that i'm thinking about this and talking about this it does actually tie into what we were just talking about because he loves that person the brother lookalike but turns him in yeah. he actually does go against them Sets so him he up. kills the thing that he loves that's right, right. yeah yeah yeah. And, he, and that's why he's in the drunken rage at the end. I mean, it's compulsive. Mm-hmm. So uh, this movie's so weird, man. It's It stimulates the brain and the uh, penis, yeah, I suppose. And some, yeah. other, and some other things. Yeah, <laughs> some other things. We're done here. Well, the machine does say that we have to wrap things up here. So let's get into Critics' Choice. I actually think kind of weirdly, neither Roger Ebert or Pauline Kael review this movie. So I went on to Letterboxd. Mm. And so for the positive review, I got Darren Carver Balsiger, who gave this four and a half stars. Ooh, that's high. And writes, I've heard from many reviewers that you only truly appreciate Quarrel if you are gay, which makes me wonder what I, as a heterosexual man, am missing even though I thoroughly enjoyed Quarrel. Instinctively, although I could easily be wrong here, Quarrel seems to embody some sort of gay fantasy. There's virtually no straight characters, almost all male clothing is tight-fitting or fetish gear, and there's a lot of phallic imagery. As a Fassbender film, though, Quarrel is rather unique. Rather than the minimal style and realistic tone that is present in most of Fassbender's films, Quarrel is instead flamboyant and stylish. It has bright lighting, expressionistic sets, and gliding camera work. Given that Fassbender's career progressed steadily from nouvelle vague experimentation to bleak melodramas to stylish international successes, one wonders if the hyper-stylized Quarrel was the logical endpoint of his phase of increasingly stylish movies, or if this movie was meant to be the beginning of a new style that was cut short by Fassbender's untimely death. Either way, it certainly stands out in this filmography. Overall, Quarrel is a daring and fascinating film which ends Fassbender's career on a high point. It's uniquely the work of Fassbender and yet a distinctive and edgy piece. Quarrel seems a fitting finale for the German iconoclast. 38 people uh, liked that review. Icon- we should, I gotta use iconoclast more. You are an iconoclast. I actually have the same idea because even on his Wikipedia page, they have like these very specific periods that Fassbender had. Like this is his like mm. experimentation his phase, okay. his avant-garde phase, right? His melodrama phase. And I wonder if they, yeah, this was part one of his like really wild, like expressionistic phase <laughs> that he was about to go into. We'll never know, of course, but it's interesting. I find when we've been doing this, the more someone is a fan or contextualizes themselves with a director themselves, the more they become apologetic of whatever we're watching. The context of it, it's interesting because we're watching this as the only, like you brought up in the intro. Yeah, the only one I've seen. So we're just evaluating this as a film in itself. It absolutely does impact it. Again, I, I bring up the Blank Check podcast. And what is interesting when you do, because I usually watch along with them, like the director's whole filmography from the very first to his very last, you then start to notice little things like, oh, he does a similar sort of thing in this movie too. They learn about oh, their personality. It here. Right? It's like, oh, this is happening here. And like, oh, this is a huge departure for him, which I had, if I had no context, I'd probably be able to go in and maybe enjoy something more or whatever, because I don't have like, why are you doing this when I'm expecting you to do this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You probably see like their naivety, youthful, their midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I prefer to always stay cynical. The negative review comes from Jerry McLaughlin. He gave it two stars and writes, where Quirrell begins to lose me is in its artifice, presenting a dreamlike atmosphere that, at least visually speaking, is sumptuous and at times profoundly erotic. Once again, something I can appreciate and is a pleasure to watch. 
But the acting, ugh, damn. <laughs> the acting in this film is unbearable for me. It's obvious that the choice to have everyone deliver lines in borderline mechanical fashion with wooden inflections and laughable timing is intentional to cultivate a sense of fantasy. But it just didn't work for me whatsoever. This and the way the plot is presented made it so that I had zero emotional investment in the story, resulting in near total disinterest apart from its aesthetic and commentary on sexual liberation, despite my best efforts to stay interested in the story. I wish I would have liked this more, and perhaps a rewatch is in order at some point now that I'm aware of what I'm in for. So many people whose opinion on film I respect love this movie, and as a self-proclaimed Fassbender fan, it saddens me to admit that I didn't really like this apart from how sensorily arousing it is. Bummer. 45 people like that review. That's going to be my review. Bummer. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> uh, also, what one of the characters is called in this movie. I was going to say, it's, it's the name so. of a position. <laughs> Dave, we do need to rate this film. But before we do, that is what Dave and I thought of the movie. What do you think? You can send any feedback. And please do send us that feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle Katie VSTM. We also release a video each week on our YouTube channel that matches the movie that we're talking about that week. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month, something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie. Dave, out of five, what are you going to rate Querel? I'm just thinking about those films. You know, like Sweetback, we mm. had the same amount of intellectual discussion and offense, but I gave it a one because it's mm -hmm. so poorly constructed and through no sure. fault of Melvin Van Peebles. I don't remember what I rated Throw Away Your Books. But it, it was, was one as well. Yeah, it was I very think. one or one and a half. It was just maybe one and a half because it's like maybe. slightly better. But so I think I'm going to give this a two. It, yeah, it's so weird. I've been thinking about trying to formalize my rating system, but. Uh, Get a rubric in order. It's just hard because there are cinematographic, cinematographical, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's shot professionally. This is a person that knows how to make a feature film. Yeah, I like the second reviewer. It's difficult to watch because there's no plot. Uh, it's just so random. I totally understand why people would not connect with this. I ended up really enjoying it as, uh, like I said, as an intellectual exercise. I do feel I do want to revisit this in a few months just to be like, okay, now that I kind of know what, what I'm about to experience, am I going to lock into this even more so? I also want to check out some more Fassbender films, to be mm -hmm. honest, just mm -hmm. to truly get a whole context of this. So as a first watch... And I guess my level of enthusiasm after the movie, I'm going to give it a four. Wow. A four. That's high. Okay. I have to digest that. I'm going to have to be, I'm going to think about that for a long time, Kyle. You, you can digest on that. You can eat it. Yeah. That's going to average to a three. Wow. Okay. Average to a three, which means it is going to tie with one other film currently, which is Smithereens. So do you think we should put this above or below Smithereens? Oh, that's a tough one, eh? It's interesting that they lined up together too. Oh man, I don't know. Obviously, you want to put it above. I probably would put it above Smithereens, yes. All right. I'll, I'm okay with that. Okay. We'll uh, agree to disagree here this week. So, um, 
No, I said, okay, I agreed. I agreed. Put it above. Entering the list at the number 11 position, right above Smithereens and right below Sophie's Choice is going to be Quirrell. It's a lot of challenging movies already. Yeah, I know. Well, let's see if we're going to have some more challenging movies here. Yeah. I'm going to push this button to see what we're going to see next week. Well, Dave, you know, we go from this very gay movie to perhaps the gayest movie. <laughs> We're going to watch Conan the Barbarian next week. Uh, the first one, right? Barbarian, not the Destroyer. Yeah, yeah. The so, very first one. Uh, Arnold, Basically the movie that breaks out Schwarzenegger. Yeah, he hasn't quite grasped English yet. It's going to be great. Mm. But he doesn't mm. wear a shirt. So, right, shirtless yeah. the entire time. He would fit in to Quarrel very nicely. Uh, he, he's too big. He would be, From a German filmmaker to, I guess, an Austrian actor. Yeah, he would, uh, he would be too big. Okay. I think we're about to go into a run of 80s blockbusters day that's just what it feels like oh, to me. i can't wait i i need a break yeah <laughs> all right well that's a what reprieve. we're gonna watch next week here anyways how, what do you think about this like really super tight fitting tank top i have on and like these really <laughs> tight white sailor pants i hadn't noticed frankly yeah. oh well <laughs> sorry no. well can i at least borrow your hat uh, i still have to find a larger pom-pom My fever dream is seeing you both bathed in blood. You're seeing so much dong. Thrusting. Is a penis. Pumping them out. It's a cock and balls. Well, if you're excited, might as well jump in. You need a girthy pom-pom. Something larger than six inches. Come!